0: Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we continue our History of Gear series with a conversation with Dr. Rachel Gross a professor of history at the university of colorado denver we discuss her research and study of the outdoor industry from the buckskin era to modern day excited to continue our uh, history of gear series um, and today i'm excited to have dr rachel gross who is joining me to uh, share a little bit about um, their work with uh, history of the outdoor industry uh, Your Work in preserving and researching this industry, uh, and and to my knowledge, you're you're really the foremost um, academic, uh, you know, person working for a university who's who's doing this this work. There's other people, you know, we've had Bruce Johnson on, uh, who's been preserving this work on his own time. Um, you're really the first and only person that I know that is out there preserving this this uh, work and and doing academic research. Um, do, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background um, first of all your your current role I know you're at the University of Colorado denver uh teaching history uh, as a as a professor there professor of history but would you mind sharing a little bit about about your background and we can get into how you got into the history of of the outdoor industry
1: yeah definitely thanks so much chase for the introduction and I'm happy to, to to be here virtually with you um so I've been a longtime outdoor enthusiast, and a big part of my interest in the outdoor industry came from being a person growing up in a city thinking that if only I could go camping, if only I could get back to nature, then I would become the kind of rugged outdoorsy person that I had read about in magazines that I had seen pictures of in catalogs. So in many ways, my professional trajectory dates back to my middle school self, kind of longingly holding my brother's copy of Boys Life magazine or paging through um, guidebooks about places that I had never been to but really wanted to go to. Um, I took a wandering path to graduate school in Wisconsin where I realized that I could actually study the things that I was so passionate about in my personal life, namely outdoor clothing and gear, right? These are fun topics that I would definitely read about In my leisure time, but it turns out there is actually um, an academic perspective to the history of the industry and the material goods that come out of it. And that's because, um, you know, every industry has deeper stories to tell than just here's some technology and it changed over time. And I'm excited to add to the conversations that have already been happening outside of the academic sphere. As you mentioned, there are lots of people who care deeply about the history of the industry that they've worked in uh, or you know, bought products from their entire lives. Um, and having somebody who's able to step back and put small technological changes or individual companies into a broader context, into a perspective that helps situate it into an American national narrative can be really useful because it helps those people who care a lot about the history of where they came from and how they got to where they are, understand the bigger stories that they're a part of.
0: Right. Can, can you maybe let's go down that, that train of thought a little bit. Can you speak to the importance of having those two different voices, right? Just, just individuals like myself, you know, who's, who's interested in in preserving the history of the outdoor industry and and doing my own archival efforts. And, and those of of Bruce Johnson, who we've had um, on the series previously, you know, how significant is it? And, and what is that extra element that bringing in formal academic research in the work that you do? What, you know, how does that bring this work to the next level? And how do those two kind of different, differing backgrounds support each other?
1: So I'll say right off the bat that both share an interest in narrative, which means they want to tell meaningful stories about the past and show off The cool characters and interesting ideas that are there. But we have different kinds of strengths. I think um, part of what I admire about the work of Bruce Johnson, about what Utah State has done in terms of collecting historical materials, is that um, you have access to documents and individual people who've been prominent in the industry in a way that I don't necessarily have, or that I don't necessarily have time to work on. So what I mean by that is, um, Johnson's work has included interviews with prominent figures in the history of the outdoor industry, especially in the American West. Um, He's collected much of that material and made it available to a broader public via self-published books. These are really rich resources. They're quite similar in some ways to the kinds of the starting point of the collections at the Archives at Utah State, you know, hundreds or thousands even of catalogs from outdoor companies around the country. Somebody like me can look at these documents all together and say, okay, here are a lot of catalogs and they've changed over time. What can that tell us? Now, somebody who's focusing on um, one individual object might be able to track changes in design or usage over the course of 20 or 30 years. What I can do is say, here's how something that doesn't seem related to the outdoor industry, like, oh, World War II, actually is intimately related to the changes that we see in an outdoor catalog. In other words, you might not see World War referenced when you're paging through a catalog in 1955, but there's no doubt that it's there. And I'm able to bring in a broader perspective and say, here's how this fits into a much broader story. And in some ways, I'm able to take these really interesting narratives that amateur historians have already uncovered and make a case for, these are of national and international importance because they can tell us something about the trajectory of the American economy and American culture.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's something that that Bruce and I have explored a little bit is some of the, the larger context that, that, especially some of these early founders uh, the Jerry, you know, Jerry, um, you know, the Yvonne Chenards, you know, these different individuals who founded these companies, you know, what were the circumstances that they were living in? And in some cases, I, you know, I I don't know. I, you know, like you said, looking at a catalog, it's hard to know what were these people going through. Uh, you know, what was influencing them. Um, and so I I appreciate the great work that you do to help bring that larger perspective, that context. And and I think that's where this becomes really fun. Right is is seeing where the outdoor industry fits within the larger world, where these products fit. Um, with that said, um, what is it about products for you? you? You've it sounds like always had this interest in the outdoor industry. What is it about physical objects, apparel, gear, and specifically those products uh, related to the outdoor industry? What what attracted you to to this this space?
1: I'm ultimately interested in telling stories about identity, and I think people attach so much meaning to the everyday consumer goods that they buy and use. And I I would say that I'm guilty of that, but that implies that there's kind of a moral judgment against it. And I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. I have, you know, a beloved uh, shirt uh, that's faded and ripped. I can't really wear it anymore, but it reminds me of certain trips that I took, certain days on the trail, and a kind of feeling that I had when I was just embarking on those journeys to begin. with. In other words, the shirt, which no one else cares about, and honestly my partner would prefer it if I didn't wear it out in public anymore, reminds me of a certain time in my life. It has great associations and it symbolizes to me something bigger about, you know, where my life has gone. So those kinds of stories, I think we could find if I asked any person on the street about the clothes that they wear, about the bag that they carry, how they choose their shoes. It doesn't have to necessarily be about the outdoors. It's just that once we look to this leisure world, right, this outdoor space, you get to tell a lot of fun stories because so many times in the second half of the 20th century, Americans draw a lot of meaning, a lot of their central, their core identities from their leisure time activities. So they don't want to be defined by who they are in the office or what happens Monday through Friday during work hours, but rather what they choose to pursue outside of those times. And so looking at here are the shoes that they take on their climbing adventures, or here's the pack that got them through that long trip that they took can really be a gateway to understanding how about how they want to represent themselves to the world
0: that's great how how do you feel like the outdoor industry has done so far in preserving its history what What's the state of of historic preservation of of academic research of um, of the outdoor industry?
1: I would say the outdoor industry is in the beginning stages of recognizing how important the stories it already has access to are to preserve so there are some efforts at a number of companies to have internal corporate archives to make sure that current employees have access to designs 20 years of the past or catalogs from 50 years ago. I think that's really important. Similarly, there are university efforts to preserve these kinds of records on a much larger basis, cutting across, not just across companies, across different areas of the field. That's also hugely important work. But for the most part, businesses aren't thinking first and foremost about preserving history because they're in the business of the here and now, right? They're thinking forward and not necessarily backwards about where their company has been in the past 15 or 50 or even hundred years. The good thing I think for the outdoor industry is that very clearly companies are invested in talking about heritage. So, you know, the origins of their companies who their founders are, and what kind of claim they might have to authentic experience in the past. I think that's really central to Outdoor companies' marketing campaigns. And so I think there is a good business reason for preserving that history in addition to this much more human one, right? Telling the stories of people who've been involved in an industry that they care about deeply, about an industry that clearly so many millions of Americans have invested their time and identities in.
0: Do you feel like... um current companies founders uh, people involved in the outdoor industry do you feel like they see their industry as relatively young and so they don't think of the work that they're doing as historic i i I mentioned that because bruce and i had this conversation about jerry cunningham and, and the founding of jerry and and you know looking back on his life bruce bruce mentioned that that jerry didn't necessarily see himself as an outdoor pioneer right um and And I feel that 's common among some of these founders of of some of the modern outdoor companies that we see today. Um, do you think that 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 thought process would change if these companies actually saw themselves um, as a part of of an older industry, for example, the work that you do um, makes it really clear that the outdoor industry isn 't so isn 't so young or isn 't as young as we think it is you know as, as being an industry that started um, you know, with Jerry, it started with Abercrombie and L.L. Bean and Eddie Bauer. And even before then, the work that you do talking about buckskin, right? It, it, it ties it back uh, further. Do you think, do you think there's anything to that?
1: Absolutely. I think part of what happens with uh, people who recognize themselves in history or not is that um, one, it's hard to link yourself as an individual or as a single entity to a longer narrative if somebody isn't there to help you make the connection. So a good comparison kind of far field in some ways from what we're talking about, Um, unless I took history classes or talked to people who were older than me about uh, uh, changes to women's lives in the late 20th century, if I didn't study the feminist movement, I would be hard pressed to really understand how incredible it is that I, as a woman, am able to go and open uh, a credit card account without a man to sign for me, right? That's a very small detail, but it makes my life a part of a much bigger history. In the same way, outdoor company employees and owners might see themselves as just individual people whose stories aren't very important, aren't connected to something bigger. But of course, we're all historical actors in our own time. And I think you don't have to be famous. You don't have to be a big name showing up in national headlines in order to be someone who has an important story to tell. In fact, the everyday experiences, for instance, of women working in the outdoor industry can be just as telling for overall trends as getting that one big name famous person who's the CEO of a particular company, right? Like that actually can tell us a whole lot more about the trajectory of the industry. And to your second question, yes, I do think that being more familiar with long trajectories can help people recognize how they're a part of history. So as you suggested, my own research starts in the late 19th century. And so when you consider the outdoor industry as a 150 year phenomenon, rather than one that only dates back to the 1970s, your perspective on what are important technological shifts, who have been the important actors and how have the demographics of who participates in outdoor sports changed, um, can really shift if you're looking at that much longer period.
0: Right. It's, it's interesting to me. I, I think before I really got involved in the industry, I probably would have thought, well, the, the key companies in the outdoor industry are, you know, it's Patagonia, right? And they've been around for, you know, however many decades. Um, it wasn't until I really got into the industry and, and then even got a, acquainted with your work that I, I started to discover this wider world, right? That, oh, I you know, I had no idea that Abercrombie & Fitch was an outdoor company. Right. right. And, and they've been around since, you know, early 1900s. Right. Um, so it's, it's that education and, um, you know, th- just or maybe that lack of understanding and, and familiarity with the industry and the companies and tying that narrative together. And, um, you know, it's, it's been really interesting and eye opening to me to to learn, you know, how much uh, older this industry really is.
1: I think that's absolutely right. It's older than people might expect. And its influence in many ways is also much broader. So part of what I mean by that is that people can be surprised by the Abercrombie and Fitch example, not realizing that that was one of the big outdoor outfitters of the early 20th century in New York City, but they also might not realize that companies today that no one associates with outdoor clothing and gear, ones like Banana Republic or Land's End or J. Crew, all are spinoffs based on outdoor company models of the 1970s and 1980s, in other words, even companies that feel very far afield from the trail draw influence from these legacies from this history of the outdoor industry and so the industry's influence has been on popular fashion much more broadly far beyond the sporting activities that you might expect
0: well and and i think a lot of people i mean most people who participate in the outdoor industry aren't the extreme users right you know they're they're not that aspirational Image that you see in the branding of, of some of these brands. It's, you know, I, I don't put on my puffy jacket necessarily to go climb a mountain. I I put it on to to go outside and and go to work, right? And I, I feel like, you know, I, I guess that that makes the outdoor industry even larger than maybe we, you know, sometimes we limit it to to just those extreme users, right?
1: Right, and I think, I mean. outdoor companies have had to grapple with for many decades what are the implications of selling not just to the extreme users at the top of the mountain but their uh, colleagues who who are much more comfortable further down in altitude or doing uh, tamer activities and I would certainly count myself among that second category Um, but I think it's really useful to understand that hasn't always been true many of these companies had their origins selling hardware right equipment to Extreme Users has only gradually made the shift towards people who are more interested in outdoorsy style than actually doing the activities themselves. So understanding where those changes come from, how companies can or cannot sometimes control who their market is and what the meanings people might attach to it, all of those things we can learn from studying the history of an industry over a long period.
0: Yeah, a lot of this is just top of mind because I we I just had a conversation about Jerry, but um, what I thought was interesting about that whole company and, and Jerry himself was uh, not only was he making products for extreme users, that's kind of where it started, was from his experience on, in the 10th Mountain Division, right? Um, you know, in, in extreme environments, he came home, started to make products for extreme users, uh, but then. You know, he had he had a family, and he started realizing, well, I need to make the the kitty carrier, right? I need to make products for every you know people who are just going out and just want to get outside. Um, and then he started getting into making, you know, writing his own books on educating people of how to use the gear. And and so it was kind of interesting to see that progression from going extreme user to, well, now I need to educate the public, the everyday person on on how do you get outside and how do you use products and and. And I think we're starting to see some of that with, with brands currently. A lot of these brands, they, like you said, they're kind of wrestling with how do we sell to the extreme and the lifestyle, you know, consumer. Um, and, and then how do we educate people on how to get outside? It seems like that's been a common thread, even back to the Jerry time. It's how do we educate people on, on how to get into the outdoors? We're still trying to, I think we, we as a people still feel a little daunted by the frontier, right? And, and the outside and, and how to get into it. But I'm sure you have thoughts on that.
1: (laughs) I do. I I mean, I'll push that history even further back. Absolutely. Jerry Cunningham was one of those pioneers in terms of figuring out how to write new guidebooks that would help, uh, help usher more people into the outdoors. But 100 years before that, there were already guidebook authors whose main goal was to help communicate, here's what the outdoor experience has to offer, and here's how you can survive somewhat comfortably while you're doing it. And so I like to look back to these guidebooks of the 1880s and the 1890s to get a sense of what are the kinds of products or craft skills that guidebook authors are recommending? And then when exactly do outdoor brands show up into that mix? Because the major shift of the early part of the uh, outdoor recreation education, right? The guidebooks and the catalogs was went from teaching people you should be able to make everything that you need to survive with your own hands. You should be able to craft it out of nature's storehouse. Two, here are some particular companies who make great tents that I can recommend to you. So that also is a form of education, right? The retail interaction can help teach or initiate new consumers into this outdoor world and help them feel just a little bit more comfortable.
0: Right. We, we've kind of glossed over, a lo- we've, we've kind of been jumping right into into really your research and your studies um, maybe we can pull back a little bit and and talk about kind of from a higher level i guess what timelines are you looking at when you know in your studies um, if it can't you're not studying all outdoor history because that spans um you know in, into europe that's a much longer history of you know of the outdoor industry than we do um, and beyond Um, your work primarily focuses on, on the U S is that right? And and what what time periods?
1: Sure. So the book is called, uh, that I'm, that's in progress is called Buckskin to Gore-Tex the outdoor industry in American history. And as that suggests, I'm focusing on the U S outdoor industry. And I'm looking at the period from after the civil war to the end of the 20th century, Buckskin, that Buckskin era, um, Often people date that around 1893 because that was what one historian, Frederick Jackson Turner, called the closing of the frontier. So in other words, as Americans transitioned from rural to more urban lifestyles, as the country industrialized, they lost some connection, he theorized, to the Wild West, uh, this wilderness out there where men, especially white men, could prove themselves, could prove their mettle and become more American. That's the buckskin era, all the way up until the end of the 20th century with the rise of high-tech synthetics like Gore-Tex and um, other materials. um, Those are the two bookends of the project because in some ways they capture both the technological evolution over a 150-year period, which has been vast and absolutely has revolutionized how people participate in outdoor sports. But it also captures the cultural shifts that have happened. from uh the buckskin era when uh frontiersmen were trying to emulate native peoples and their approaches to dressing for extreme environments with the buckskin technology all the way to the synthetics produced by chemical companies at the end of the 20th century those are two very different notions of who counts as an expert where good materials come from and how the everyday user should interact with them.
0: Wow. There's a lot there. And I, am I'm, I'm hoping that we can have further conversations because I, right now it's, you know, I'm trying to just do an overview, um, but I just want to dive in and talk more about each of these issues. There's so much there. And so hopefully we can get into, into each of these eras in, in uh, you know, subsequent conversations. But is there a way that you've been able to distill down these different eras of the outdoor industry? Have you been able to divide those up in some way, the buckskin era? Um, how have you been able to, to divide up the different eras of, of the outdoor industry? Or, or have you not been able to do that?
1: Sure. No, I think that's one of the things that professional historians get lots of training on. World War transformed both the technologies of the outdoors and the attitudes that people had about what outdoor sports should look like the war also transformed who had access to hiking clothing and equipment. In other words, it democratized access by making cheap army surplus equipment and clothing available all across the country in army surplus stores. So if you think of that middle of the 20th century as the turning point, it helps give a clear chronology to the overall trajectory of the outdoor industry. The first third of the book covers the buckskin era to the age of Abercrombie and Fitch, what happens in that time period essentially is that outdoor companies like Abercrombie teach Americans that rather than making what they need in order to survive outdoors, they should buy those products instead. This was actually a radical shift given the older ethos of woodcraft, which was all about what skills you can bring to the outdoors. But consumer goods came to be a central part of the outdoor experience starting in the early 20th century. World War II, as I mentioned, is that turning point. Um, And it happens in part because the American military recruits expert outdoorsmen, including mountaineers, but also people like Eddie Bauer and L.L. Bean and Harold Hirsch, people who worked at outdoor companies to serve as their expert consultants who went on to shape what clothing and equipment looked like for the American military? In the years that followed, then, what got sold in Army surplus stores all around the country were both cheap sleeping bags that worked really well, old jackets, weird goggles, whatever you, what treasures you might hope to find, but also certain ideas about how to dress for extreme environments. One really good example of that is the idea of layering clothing. Now, wearing a few thin layers of clothes rather than one big heavy coat might seem like an obvious tactic for how to deal with changes in temperature and exertion, but this wasn't common knowledge until outdoorsmen brought that lesson to the military and the military in turn taught it to millions of soldiers during the war. So that's what I mean by saying, yes, they changed technologies, but they also changed ideas about how um, bodies were supposed to feel in outdoor environments. So that brings us to the period after World War II, the final third of the book project, which starts in 1968, is what I call the supermarket of the outdoors era. So the supermarket, because it was a boom time for participation in all kinds of outdoor sports, and because it was a boom time for outdoor companies, new ones being founded, old ones growing at exponential rates. Suddenly all across the country, it seemed young people, were participating in um, outdoor sports in a big way and buying all the accoutrement to go with it. So this is the era when many of the companies that some of your listeners might be familiar with, might have in their closets, uh, now uh, got, uh, were started. It was also the era when older companies like L.L. Bean and Eddie Bauer grew to become national mail order retail chains that were able to serve a much bigger population Far beyond the outdoor enthusiasts themselves moving into this kind of market of outdoor lifestyle uh fans who are eager to have Eddie Bauer brands on their Ford trucks or on their dog beds as well. So we end up in the Gore-Tex era, this age of high-tech synthetics, when outdoor clothing and equipment is wildly popular, available to a much broader swath of the American population, though it still is, of course, quite expensive at times, and has brought about major changes in how Americans dress on an everyday basis, right? Casual wear, sportswear is the American style these days, especially now. Um, and the outdoor industry was responsible for a big part of that shift.
0: There's there's so much in there and I want to get into each one of those eras, but even just having this conversation, it, it's so informative to to look at these macro level events um, and see how they impacted where we are today. I don't think most people would look back and, and see the war as being such an influential, you know, piece of what informed what the outdoor industry would become. Um, and, and I think kind of of this more modern era of, of the outdoor industry, it's, it's interesting kind of the confluence of events that started to happen in the, in the sixties, you know, after the war, you had this, you know, all this outdoor gear that was available, this, this military product, um, you know coinciding with I guess the the hippie movement right um, it, and it's it, it's no wonder that you get a company like Patagonia being formed during that time right um, that i, I don't I, I just think that time period is so interesting where you have 10th mountain division people coming back, a flood of new gear um, you know the values that we see of the industry currently kind of um, you know, coming to the forefront um, during that time. It, it's interesting to trace all of that back.
1: I, th- I love doing that. I think I was surprised myself by how important the military turned out to be in this story. A good example of that is with Army-Navy stores. Now, mm-hmm. even I had been to Army-Navy stores as a kid. I knew that they kind of smelled bad and had all sorts of weird junk and big piles lying around, but people yeah. loved them. And that's been true for a really long time. What I didn't realize is that so many of the people who were able to start outdoor companies in the 1950s, in fact, first started Army Navy stores, right? That was where Mm. they got their initial influx of goods, their lessons in, you know, their education in retail and reaching customers. And then later on, they went on to specialize in outdoor goods specifically. But for many, it was the ability to access cheap. Uh, military goods at uh, in these big lots, and then resell them to a broader public, it was their starting point for outdoor companies, and that 's something that you wouldn 't know if you walked into an outdoor store today right you wouldn 't be able to see that influence because so many of them have now made the transition to now we just sell fishing and camping stuff you don 't see any gas masks flying around, but that actually is where so many of these places got their start
0: right uh, we we've talked quite a bit about. Kind Of the macro level, um, you know, in, in your book that you're working on, uh, right now, Buckskin to Gore Tex, uh, do you mind sharing a little bit more about, you know, some of your past writing, past research? Um, I, I know you have a great article on layering, so some of these specific outcomes of, of these larger events um, on the industry. W- what are some of the other topics that you've been diving into within this larger narrative?
1: Sure, so one article I've written uh, focuses on the war itself, and it looks not at the 10th Mountain Division, which is a wonderful but very well-known story, but rather at the Quartermaster Corps, which Mm. is the branch of the U.S. Army that's responsible for logistics, including developing and distributing clothing and equipment. So for people who are interested in looking at military history and its influence on the outdoors, the Quartermaster Corps turns out to be this really exciting place because it's full of mountaineers, it's full of expert outdoorsmen who get recruited to come consult on the issues of how do you dress soldiers for cold weather, something that American military officers had never really encountered before. So that's one direction of research. Right now, I'm working on a chapter on the popularization of outdoor style in the 1970s, and so, uh, oh, sorry, in the 1980s, the end of that story is one that people who are uh, um, millennials might remember fondly from the 1990s. And that was hip hop styles of the 1990s where outdoor clothing became fashionable to a much broader audience. North face puffy jackets and Timberland boots became popularized by young black and brown men in um, inner cities specifically rappers were the ones who helped to bring the styles to a much broader audience. Now, that fashion faded after a few years, but it's such a fascinating trend to look at because it shows how very little, what kind of amounts of control outdoor companies have over the image in ways that consumers actually are the ones who get to define what they're using it for and what it says about them and who they are. Um, so we go from preppy trends where people are wearing uh, L.L. Bean boots uh, to college campuses because they look good, not because they're about to go hunting, to um, inner city youth who are wearing similar kinds of styles a decade later. I find that shift fascinating, and it's one that helps us understand these broader ways that outdoor styles have become a part of everyday use.
0: I think an example of that in in the current day is is the increase in outdoor styles in high fashion you know i've I've noticed that quite a bit you you see a lot of puffy puffy or in the last few years you've seen a lot of down and and puffy jackets um on the runway um and that's not necessarily the brands you know, doing that in a way it's, it's designers who are taking those styles and taking that influence from the outdoor industry and elevating it, you know, elevating it in a way um, and taking it to a different level. Um, It's, it is interesting to see how the consumer um, really defines what those products mean to them and make them feel, Um, you know, I know you've got limited time. I I just wanted to touch on uh, your museum work. And some of your archival work um, and, and and the work you're doing to preserve physical items, um, you know I think we all love gear, and we love these products and and like you said, they they contain memories and um, you know ever, and I think that's interesting you know in, in the, the outdoor industry right now, there's such a movement to to repair your gear and and see those tears and rips and 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 the repairs as, as scars right and and memories. Um, I guess what what are you working on right now when it comes to to museum work and preservation? I I know you've had some museum exhibits that you've put together um, in coordination with some of the classes that you've you've been teaching. What's some of that work like that you're you're engaged in right now? Sure. Or in the past.
1: Yeah, the museum exhibit um, uh, it, at the historical museum in Fort at Fort Missoula was called Outdoor Gear Stories, and students at the University of Montana in Missoula and I collected oral histories and then also objects from people's gear closets. Now, in a place like Montana, you can imagine these closets aren't just little kind of corners of their rooms, they're entire garages or basements or attics filled with five decades or more of equipment for skiing and climbing and hiking and more. So there were a lot of treasures to be found there. And I think the best part of that exhibit for me was the ability for the students to connect individual objects with broader stories. So getting a sense, for instance, of how one woman who was frustrated with the lack of backpacks that fit her petite body finally found one that would actually work for her and how she held on to that for decades afterwards and retained a loyalty to that company because of it. A key part of that kind of history work is bringing those interpretations to a broader public, right? So we had more than 100 people show up at this um, small museum's opening and then many more filtered in over the course of the next few months. I can envision similar kinds of museum exhibits of that type, right? Where we collect from people in the community to tell the stories about how their particular interest in outdoor sports and all the goods they've acquired in relation to that can help link them to bigger narratives in the industry and in the history of leisure time activities too. Part of what it means for me to take on this new job as a historian at the University of Colorado in Denver is to stop and learn from the people in the community. So in other words, the role of public historians is not to impose a kind of set narrative or story that we think ought to exist there, but rather to listen to the people who live in the place where you are and get a sense of, what are the stories according to them? What are the things that they've held on to and what does it say about this place in this time? And that I can't really tell you yet. Uh, you know, I'm new to this place and I, I know that Denver and Colorado more broadly is a great place to learn about the history of the outdoor industry and how it's impacted the lives of everyday Americans. And I'm really excited to see what my students and I uncover in the coming years.
0: That is exciting. Um, what, what's your current teaching load like and, and, uh, I guess, from that perspective, um, now you're a history professor, are you teaching um, specifically outdoor history in your current role?
1: Uh, No, I'm not right now. So uh, in the history department, I teach classes like commodities and globalization, history of capitalism and women and gender history. Um, But I'll also be teaching courses in the future on public history where students and I will have the chance to contribute to local museums, to collect materials for new exhibits, or to envision some kind of cool partnership that doesn't even yet exist. Um, I did, while I was at my previous institution, the University of Montana, teach a class on wilderness and the outdoor industry. So that's that kind of very specific niche uh, look at the outdoor industry over the last 150 years that I think you're asking about. It was a fun class. I know there's an audience for that kind of thing. And if it makes sense for course offerings in the future, I'll do it that way. If not, I could easily envision a more public version of that class to reach a broader audience who cares about these issues and wants to learn more.
0: Right, that's great. Well, for those who do want to stay in touch with you, I, I know we'll wrap up. I know you've got a class you've got to teach here in a little bit. Um, how do people stay in touch with you and your work and engage with it uh, moving forward?
1: So, the uh, my website, rachel gross.com, is a good place if people are interested in looking um, at the articles that we mentioned. The one on the history of layer- layering, which was published on the Atlantic website. The other one on the history of the quartermaster Corps and its influence on uniforms is also accessible through that site. Um, there you'll also find uh, access to my Twitter handle, my email address and all the other ways people might wanna actually get in touch with me directly.
0: Well, that's great. Well, I, I'm hoping we can do more of these moving forward. There's so much to talk about, but I think this was just a great introduction to your work um from the academic perspective uh, and that high level overview. And um, you know, this is just exciting for me to to hear these stories and um, you know, hopefully we can do what we can to to share this this history with a a broader audience and and uh you know help people realize the importance of this industry and um no, excited to have more conversations in the future.
1: Thank you so much. Me
0: too. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the time. Thanks for listening to the Highlander Podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found. On Highlanderbag.com and each Sunday at four p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cash Valley.